democracy or republicanism, either one, I argue, is puritanical. Is puritanical. It's hostile to pleasure and freedom. That kind of freedom, individual freedom. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Welcome back, my Liberty Lynchburgs, to the Lions of Liberty podcast, your home for great conversations about the ideas of liberty. This is the 237th episode of this program, which means that you can find the show notes featuring links to just about everything we discuss over at lionsofliberty.com slash 237. Today's show is sponsored by our good friends at Health Excellence Select, who have put together the ultimate free market solution to your healthcare woes. Check them out at lionsofliberty.com slash health. And unless this is your first episode, or unless you missed Monday's show and skipped to this one, you'll know that I had a great conversation with Thaddeus Russell, author of A Renegade History of the United States, this past Monday. And the conversation, he was so generous with his time. I really got to thank Thaddeus Russell for that, and that we just kept talking. We went well, well, well beyond the normal time that I, I give you for these episodes. So I did decide to split this into two parts, and I'm pleased to present to you now the second part of my interview with Thaddeus Russell. All right, Thaddeus, I want to just touch on a couple things in your book real quick, and then we'll maybe get into some some current events and some stuff that's going on right now. So sure. uh, one thing, it's one of the first stories in your book, uh, and it's, it is about uh, – Somebody who is widely considered to be maybe the first casualty of the American Revolution, certainly the first death of the Boston Massacre, and that's Crispus Attucks, a guy whose name we hear and we we hear what happened to him as the, as he was killed by you know, British soldiers, but we don't really hear much about who he actually was. So, what did your research show about just about who Crispus Attucks was and what actually might have occurred there at the Boston Massacre, which really is seen as as the the spark that lit the American Revolution? So, Crispus Attucks, you know, we don't. We don't know for sure, but he was probably a bootlegger, uh, a rum runner, transported rum illegally from the West Indies to the colonies, to the American colonies. We know that on that night of the Boston Massacre in the in the in the bar uh, where those people came from, you know, it was, it was full of drunks and some prostitutes. And, you know, they were probably gambling and probably dancing to body music and doing all sorts of things they weren't supposed to be doing. Yeah, the Boston Massacre was that kind of people confronting the Redcoats in the streets, and that's never talked about. And that is why John Adams, in the trial that followed the Boston Massacre, the trial of the Redcoats, that's why John Adams defended, was the lawyer for the Redcoats for the British Army. And in the trial, he made it very clear. He said, you know, this we can't have a civilization with people like those who were shot. <laughs> And he, he called them, he had all these epithets for them. He called them Jack Teagues and Irish rabble and Negroes, et cetera. And he was right. So, you know, the, the, the project that John Adams and the founding fathers were undertaking was essentially democracy. Of course, was, I know there's a whole argument about republicanism versus democracy, but either way, it's a, re- a government by the people. We all agree on that, whether it's republicanism or democracy, government of or by the people. And they understood that a government of or by the people requires that the people discipline themselves. You can't be in a bar drinking all night long if you're going to run the place. 
So how else are you going to get up and do your, you know, work your nine to five and contribute to capitalism well, and contribute? To well, society? first of all, I mean, you have to. Okay, so there's that. I mean, you have to produce stuff, right, for there to be a civilization. But I'm not even talking about that. After you're done working all day producing stuff to make a civilization, you have to have a meeting, right, to decide how the neighborhood you live in in Boston will be managed. You know. <laughs> where the streets will be, what the streets will be named. Will they be paved with cobblestones or something else? You know, shall we allow taverns to be on those streets? How many police officers should we have? Should we tax people for how much should taxes be? It's right. I mean, it's, it's a, just a ton of work, right? And if you're going to, and if you're going to manage an entire nation, which they were of course interested in, it's even more work. So democracy or republicanism, either one, I argue, is puritanical, is puritanical. It's hostile to pleasure and freedom, that kind of freedom, individual freedom, libertine freedom. And the founding fathers understood that. So the people who started, the people who ran out of that bar that night, of the night of the Boston Massacre, were the enemies of democracy, actually, in that way. And that's why John Adams was opposed to them. Yeah, and you and that again is a theme throughout your entire book, really about how the the sort of the ne'er do wells, whether it's Irishmen, Irish immigrants, whether it's slaves and former slaves, whether it's Jews, how these people really affected history. And, and as I was reading your book, I, I was kind of thinking to myself, like, this is definitely something I could kind of give to my progressive friends. Um, you know, I think they'll you know, may resonate with a lot of these stories. They're talking about other cultures, the kind of stuff that they seem to appreciate. Um, and then I get to a part where I realize, oh yeah, they might not actually like this. Cause then you get, you're, you're doing all this stuff about culture. And then suddenly we get to a point where you compare, you know, the new deal to fascism. And I'm like, okay, yeah, no, they're going to throw this thing in the garbage. <laughs> so can you just talk about, you know, how th that part of your book and why you decided to, uh, you know, keep going with your, your, your seeking out the truth here and, and not just trying to you know, appease a certain audience. Yeah. So, the the evidence is just simply overwhelming. And I'm not the first historian to say this or show it or write about it. I mean, there have been three or four pretty prominent historians, both here and in Germany, who have made this argument that the New Deal wasn't identical to uh, European fascism, but it was clearly a sibling of European fascism, uh, that there were many, many, many obvious similarities between the two. Ideologically, in terms of policy, and very much culturally. It's just, it's just overwhelming, the evidence. I mean, from the way that the economy was organized in the early New Deal with the National Industrial Recovery Act, uh, in which cartels were established in every major industry, you know, cartels where, you know, the leading, the leading businesses in each industry sat at a table with representatives of the government and sometimes union leaders, but usually it was government and business. And they would decide what the prices and wages and production quotas in those industries would be. That is exactly the economic model that was used in Italy under Mussolini, and in Germany under Hitler. That particular thing, that economic component of fascism, which pretty much every scholar of fascism agrees is the, that is fascist economics, uh, we call corporatism. And you just, I don't see a way to argue that, that that wasn't what was happening in the early New Deal. And then you have, you know, this sort of rampant militant nationalism during the New Deal 
not just the World War II part, but all through the 1930s, this idea that we must all subsume our interests to the interests of the state, that working for the state, literally working for the state, building dams and bridges and roads, et cetera, through the, through, through the public works projects. I mean, they, they pivoted what, an entire industry towards the manufacturing, uh, you know, manufacturing weapons of war. Toward, yeah, in the, well, in the, in the early 40s, yes, absolutely. But even before then, right? So that was, those were the best Americans, the people who were, who were literally working for the state. And so massive public works projects, you know, that's, that was also central <laughs> to Italian fascism and German fascism. You know, very generous welfare projects, programs. Also, I mean, people don't understand this about Hitler's Germany. You know, the German, the, the Aryan working class in Germany did really, really well under Hitler. They were given lots and lots of stuff through welfare, uh, free housing and, you know, subsidized vacations and higher wages and all sorts of stuff uh, through the state intervention, through state intervention. Very, very similar. And yeah, I mean, and so sort of a militarization of society, not just rhetorically, but the way people were literally organized in the public works projects. Many of the public works projects were actually uh, managed by the United States Army. You know, this is all all nearly identical to what was going on in Germany and Italy at the time. So you know, read it for yourself. It's a very long chapter. All the specific evidence is in there. If you look at the rhetoric of Roosevelt and Mussolini and Hitler, uh, there's clear differences. So obviously genocidal anti-Semitism, they didn't all share, although Roosevelt was very much an anti-Semite. But it's, the rhetoric is very, very similar. The, the other thing that a lot of people don't know is that one of the biggest fans, or sorry, two of the biggest fans of the early New Deal from 34 to 36 or 7, were Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini, who talked and wrote extensively about how they admired Roosevelt and what he was doing. Well, that's just some great, great endorsements there. Yeah, I, you know, and, and then going the other direction, we don't have Roosevelt himself, but we have several New Dealers. I mean, people in the New Deal, in the White House, and in Congress, and many, many, many progressives, generally progressive intellectuals who were major supporters of the New Deal, loving fascism in the 20s and 30s, especially the Italian variety. A lot of fans of Mussolini among American progressives and New Dealers. So, you know, there you go. Does that mean that we were living in a fascist society in the 1930s and early 40s? I'd say... Uh, yeah, partly. <laughs> it wasn't identical. Sure. No. I mean, everything's a matter of degree. And there's no doubt even today, more so today, we have elements of fascism, elements of socialism, elements of capitalism. It's a very uh, amalgamated system we have in the United what States. I, yeah. What I would just say is that the New Deal was part of a transatlantic fascist movement. Right. That's what I would say about it. Thaddeus, well, I want to move on real quick to uh, touch on a few things. I follow you on social media, and you're you're pretty much always out there every day with an opinion on something. So I want to touch on just a couple issues. And why don't we just start actually with the story you, you mentioned earlier and didn't get to, uh, the story about uh, your friend Camille Foster. Oh, so my son is an aspiring – he's 14 years old. He does, he's an aspiring chef. He's very talented, very good at it. Uh, I've seen your post on, on uh, Facebook of his yeah. uh, pop-up uh, – I don't know what they actually call it. Pop-up what? Pop-up restaurant. Yeah, restaurant. So there he, you go. And, it, and so it's got me, had, my mouth watering. So. Yeah, so he had his first pop-up restaurant, uh, which he had at his mother's house in, uh, in Los Angeles uh, last week. And my friend Camille Foster, I'm sure many of your listeners know him. Uh, he was on The Independence on Fox Business with Kennedy and Matt Welch. 
and he's a hard, he's a hardcore libertarian. He's a, he calls himself a Rothbardian anarchist and he's a Jamaican American. His parents are Jamaican immigrants. So he was at this, he came to the pop-up and he was sitting at a table with a guy who's a big time sort of liberal Democrat, Bernie, but now Hillary supporter. And the topic of the election came up and uh, Camille said he would not never vote for either one of them. And this enraged the Democrat so much that he, this is at my son's, my 14 year old son's event, oh, got up out of his chair, lifted his, lifted his chair up off the ground and slammed it to the floor. And then, and then here's the kicker, pointed his finger in Camille's face Oh, my, this Democrat guy is a white, a middle-class white guy from, from uh, Venice Beach. <laughs> pointed, pointed a finger in Camille's face. It wasn't face. me, was it? That just, that sounds no, like it was me. not you. Pointed a finger in Camille's face and said, you don't understand the plight of minorities and immigrants. <laughs> this is to a minority immigrant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, middle-class white man. Unbelievable. So it's just, and then someone, and then his wife said that, you know, libertarians don't care about people. So there's no, first of all, we're ne I'm never going to see these people again. They're no longer <laughs> friends of mine. I, I would, yeah, I would, think, um, I would think not. And then what they did to Camille is secondary. What they did to my son was the first reason I'm, right, I'm never going to speak of them. But even that, I just, but, you know, if they assume that I'm a bad person for having these ideas, right, why would I be friends with them? This is a big, big problem. I mean, that people with our kind of politics have, you know, we are generally assumed to be, again, not sort of, uh, Not just simply wrong or misguided, but actually bad people sometimes we, for holding certain beliefs. Yeah, and I know this is true because, I used, as I said, used, I used to be one of them. I mean, that's what I assumed about conservatives in the past and libertarians in the past. I don't know how to overcome this, but boy, is it a big problem. I do. Well, actually, I think I do know how to overcome it, <laughs> which is, I think, what I do, which is that I or try to do, I tend to do, which is that I, there's, I, th I think every libertarian argument and position has a left-wing component to it, right? There's a component, I think, to every libertarian position on every issue that would appeal to the left. And I think you should start there. You begin every argument with that. So for instance, free trade. The argument should begin with the fact, or something like, the fact that poverty has been reduced by about half globally in the last 30 years because of free trade so that it is it benefits no one more than the poorest people on earth you know that's you got to start there i mean they cannot accuse you of not caring about poor people if you start there and just that fact is so devastating and so overwhelming to the anti-trade people i don't know what they can do in response to that by the way one of the most amazing things to me and it's just disgusting is, is that every once in a while I check in and I do a search on the nation website and the mother Jones website and think progress and other lefty web, big lefty websites, magazines and journals for any reporting, any mention of that fact, which came out, I think two years ago, the world bank made that, made that announcement that, you know, global extreme poverty had been basically halved since the 1990s. They still have not mentioned it. Left-wingers, right? Radical reduction in poverty. Radical reduction of poverty, and they're not interested. 
because it doesn't fit their their narrative, I guess. Right. So so who doesn't care about people and who doesn't care about poor people? So that's I think you got to start with the left wing component of your argument first. Put that forward first. And then we have an issue where even if when you kind of come at things from that angle, like, say, free trade, you have the politicians starting to catch on. So then they'll wrap They'll use free trade rhetoric. Now, Hillary Clinton is, well, she now sort of criticizes the TPP, even though she you know, helped to write it and went on a world tour to promote it. But, you know, the, the politicians like that will say, you know, free trade is great. We agree. Here's this 10,000 page document about uh, you know, how, <laughs> right. how, how trade can be free. 10,000 pages with 10 million rules. Exactly. About and what and, can be traded. Yeah. And they're always going to kind of twist that that rhetoric into to support something that's, you know, co- completely opposite with which anybody that with that takes even you know, a cursory analysis of the TPP. I mean, just the fact that it's 10,000 pages should be a signal to people that there's more about it to, than just free trade. Because to me, if it's free trade, it's like a page that says, you know, you guys can all trade. Right. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. So, and you know, guns, here's another one, right? I mean, so what I do with guns, you may have seen my stuff that I've written on gun control, you know, I mean, the place to start with the in the gun control argument from our position is to point to the history of gun control, which is thoroughly racist, Right. thoroughly racist. I mean, explicitly Un- designed, so. explicitly designed for two centuries to disarm control and oppress black people, you know, and you, there is no argument against that. I mean, that is not contested by anyone. I mean, that is, it's, it's impossible to contest it because we just have the Ku Klux Klan stating it as their mission to disarm black ex-slaves. You know, we have it as their stated mission, Ronald Reagan and the California legislature in the 1960s to, to disarm the Black Panthers, right? It's just over and over and over and over again. Start there. Gun control is racist. Here's the here's the facts, right? Who doesn't who who doesn't care about people? Who doesn't care about poor people? Then, that's where you start. You start with the you start with a part of the argument that a, that the left should share. That's where you should start. I mean, I always try to find common ground with with other people that aren't going to you know necessarily share my beliefs, especially when they see that label. I mean, I even like when thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, there's definitely some issues that I think we should, in theory, have common ground on. Like maybe not militarizing the police so much. Um, sure. But it, when they put out, you know, they recently put out this manifesto. I know you saw it and commented on it. I mean, yeah. it kind of touches on a couple little things, but it, it basically just amounts to the government is racist, so just let's just give them way more power over everything we do, which just seems to fly directly in the face of what the, you know, the actual stated issue is. Yeah, it's that's uh, I, I was depressed all day because of that thing. I, <laughs> I mean, these are I groups I feel like we should, you know, libertarians and people that care about about these issues should have a, almost a natural affinity towards, but uh, they're making it sure. difficult. <laughs> yeah, I mean, BLM was really great in a lot of ways, in a lot of new ways. One of the ways in which they were great early on was there, and still are, in their, you know, uncompromising criticism of the Democratic Party. Right. And identifying, best of all, identifying the Democratic Party as the leaders of the war on drugs, you know, and being, you know, uncompromising on the Clintons and their and how they were architects of the war on drugs and mass incarceration. Right. I mean, that's something that the left and liberals in particular have just ignored forever and ever. So BLM has made some very important interventions, you know, and and them as a group stating that they would not endorse any candidate you know, and being as hard on Bernie as they were on Hillary. And, you know, I mean, they've done some really great, great, you know, and novel things on the left. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm hoping this platform that they adopted that is basically, you know, if Ta-Nehisi Coates and Chairman Mao had a baby, I mean, that's what this program would be. <laughs> it's so terrible. I mean, it's really, it's tribalism and communism together. It's just awful. I don't know how many people they actually re- represent. You know, you have to be careful about this. There really is, in a sense, there is no such thing as Black Lives Matter as a coherent movement or as an organized movement. You know, it's a, it's a whole bunch of people and many, many organizations. And most, I think most people aren't in an organization. So who are these people actually who wrote this? But it's depressing. Black Lives Matter, I can say this about it. I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm right about this, is that it, it is essentially, it's a movement of black, middle-class, college-educated young people this is it's really it really is a it's it's a politics that comes out of the campus left academic left that's it's pretty obvious that's in their their discourse their rhetoric the way they talk about things their ideology generally i can see it because i know it well and you know it's so it's not terribly surprising that they would go communist here uh, because that's who the academic left is I don't know how to intervene on that. It's it's really hard. <laughs> it's really, really hard, except to say what I said yesterday on social media, which is, hey, you had this fantastic critique of the government being the source of all your problems and being racist and murderous and shooting black people in the streets, which we all agree with. And now you're asking them to control black schools and black jobs and black food and water and the internet. <laughs> a real disconnect there. You know, that's, ah, God, I... They're probably just going to ignore that. But why just you just have to keep going? Because that again, that's not that the argument that I'm making. That's not a conservative argument. I mean that you know that's I'm I'm arguing that you know the I'm agreeing that the government is the enemy of black people. I think it's the enemy of all people. But it's certainly the enemy of very much in this country. The enemy of black people. I absolutely agree with them on that. I want them to have less of an enemy, you know, uh, and I'm just thinking they're, they're identifying, they're, they're somehow confusing their enemy with their friends. So ah, it's hard. Yeah. Well, Thaddeus, I think for, for a lot of my listeners in the healthcare realm, their enemy is Obamacare. So I need to take a quick break to tell my listeners about a great solution to your Obamacare woes provided by our friends at Health Excellence Select. You know, I'm a freelancer and I purchased my own health insurance and I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare. My premiums and deductibles were skyrocketing. And as someone who keeps myself pretty healthy, I knew that I was getting a raw deal for a product I simply didn't want. This caused me to seek an alternative and I found an amazing alternative in the form of health sharing, a killer concept where healthy individuals agree to share their medical costs. That's right. It's a voluntary free market system for paying for your health care that also, thanks to an exemption, covers the Obamacare mandate. Our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch by creating a full service package to handle all of your health care needs. Trust me, I'm not just a proponent of health sharing. I'm also a client. This has been one of the greatest things I've ever done to leave the Obamacare system in favor of what our friends at Health Excellence Select are doing. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. And don't hesitate to give my man Jeff Cantor a call at 440-283-684. Four nine. Be sure to mention Lions of Liberty. Yeah, I mean, Thaddeus, we've gone on pretty long here, and yeah. I don't want to keep you all day, but I did, I did mention that we'd get back to this. So I do want to quickly touch on, you know, you mentioned you do have some uh, critiques or major disagreements with libertarianism. We, we're not going to break them all down, but why don't you just pick one, pick one critique that you have of, I guess, maybe commonly held libertarian beliefs, and uh, we'll touch on that real quick, and then we'll, we'll hit on your yet Reagan University a little bit, too. 
Okay. Well, I don't know. Let's see. It's, I guess the big one that bothers me <laughs> is the non-aggression principle. So according to the non-aggression. I, I can feel some people in, in my audience just sitting in their chairs with their, uh, you know, they're starting to get tingly and starting to, starting to build up the blood pressure just hearing Good. that, but go, go on. Good. <laughs> All right. So uh, the non-aggression principle says that the Mexican-American kid in Yuma, Arizona, working at the Walmart there should not um, steal from the Walmart or should not sneak away during his break, you know, take a longer break than he's supposed to or, or cheat on his, uh, his time card, right? Uh, essentially steal from Walmart. Of course, you know, they're not, the NAP would say that, right? That's an act of aggression on his part, I think the NAP would say, and libertarians, I think, would say. And what I want to ask is, how did Walmart get there in the first place in, Yuma, in the middle of the desert Yuma, in Yuma, Arizona? You know, it was massive, sustained government intervention, both directly violent in terms of conquering that land, <laughs> removing the people who were on it, and then in all sorts of other ways, which are violent either directly or indirectly, in terms of building the streets, the roads that lead to Walmart, that make Walmart possible. And now this kid has very little options of where to work and you know where to Thank you. earn a living. Thank you. This kid happened to be born a Mexican-American kid in that godforsaken place through no fault of his own, through no choice of his own, and has gotten zero in terms of subsidies and protection from the government, the way certainly the way that Walmart has. And Walmart happens to be the only, this is very important, basically the only or one of the very few jobs available to him to make a living in that area. All right. So what are you telling me he should should and shouldn't do? <laughs> where now, more, more importantly, where are you telling me the aggression began? Where who started the aggression? Who initiated the aggression? I would say the state initiated the aggression on behalf of Walmart before this kid was even born. That's what he was born into. So, you know. To me, then it becomes a question of self-interest on the on the kid on part of the kid. I would say to him, if you are absolutely sure you can get away with stealing shit from Walmart, do it. <laughs> that is definitely going to rankle some people, but I, I do think it. you make a good point, though. I mean, it, it's something that I struggle with all the time. That yeah, like I'm not going to disagree with the non-aggression principle in a bubble. You know, if someone punches me in the face, they have violated the NAP, and I think that they have committed an injustice upon me. But in in a lot of other issues, like the one you brought up, there's there's just such a bigger context. You know, we're we're so obsessed with private property, and I, I agree with theories about private property and how it should be justly acquired. But look around us, how much of what is considered private property property that's owned by corporations was actually justly acquired in, in any sort of way that we could actually look at, other than the fact that we just say, now it's this private property of Walmart. But if, if you go back historically, there are human beings who were literally murdered to to create that land and create that quote-unquote private property. So, I mean, I do think that there is just so much context that often gets lost. Uh, yeah. You know, it's not, it's not that I disagree with the con concept of non-aggression, but sometimes, like you're like you're saying, we, we completely forget about the historical context uh, and the what has actually led to the conditions that so many people find themselves in. Let me, let me like flesh out my example just a little bit more. So every single day, <laughs> yeah, every single day, the government, according to libertarian ideas, steals money from that Mexican American kid to pay for the streets that lead to Walmart. 
that allow Walmart to exist. <laughs> they steal from all of us, but including that kid. Again, who's being aggressed upon here? Yeah, it's annoying to me. <laughs> yeah, it's a great, it's a great point, and I think a great example of just. I mean, I don't know if it necessarily disproves the non-aggression theory, but I mean, it shows that I think we can't just say non-aggression principle and just move on. You know, we have to have a a conversation that that delves into things a lot a lot more deeply. Well, what I, I I mean, what I no my my what I would say about it, I think it's on the one hand, it's a little silly, I suppose, but more importantly, it's to me, it is often not always, but often used in the service of conservative or reactionary or really non-libertarian. Ideas. I Basically, mean, that, just simply in the defense of corporations. Yeah. As if all these corporations yes. were these wonderful free market institutions that just sprung up on private property that they he, they peacefully acquired. It becomes pro corporatist. I guess is what I want right. to now say. That, that's the, one of the biggest things. Uh, it's Kevin Carson called them the vulgar libertarians. People that kind of defend. All, anything and everything corporation as if it were actually a free market that we live in, which is just really not seeing, you know, anything, any of the reality of our current society. Right. I mean, I know, now I know like the good libertarian, most good libertarians are very well aware of cor- corporatism and they're great on that concept. And I love them for that. But, you know, they, I think they miss this thing about the NAP being in conflict with that. Right, well, I hope that does get some, uh, some people out there that, you know, that have these beliefs a little bit something to think about, because I think that one thing we need to do is just is look at the nuance of our situations a lot, a lot more deeply. It's something that libertarians and people of all political beliefs uh, can really do more. And I think that's that's the kind of thought that you, I think, seek to inspire in your students and and th- seek to inspire, you know, with your writing and your courses and, and your social media commentary, the whole thing. So uh, I know that ever, this the culmination of your life's work essentially here is it's really coming to a head because you're about to launch your own uh, university, Renegade University, which, as I mentioned, way at the top of the show was uh you're calling it a the school for dangerous ideas so why don't you just briefly describe what you're doing with renegade university how people can find out more about it and you know give them the whole spiel yeah well we'll be launching this fall fall of 2016 i will have uh lectures uh that are will be available in video and audio format that you can download i'm also i will also be doing uh in-person seminars in cities across the country portland Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, maybe Austin, uh, maybe Boston. And then I will also have interactive online seminars where we will discuss the ideas in the renegade history of the United States. We'll do American history generally. There will be a course on the history of American foreign policy, which is that's the book I'm working on right now. And political philosophy. Those, I took a, a poll of all the prospective students at Renegade University, and those were the topics they were most interested in. So we're going to start with those courses, and we'll be launching hopefully in October. Great. Well, Thaddeus Russell, I want to thank you so much for coming on uh, for a pretty good amount of time with me here today. It's a really fascinating conversation, and I've really been fascinated by your work and by your commentary in general, uh, largely because it doesn't fit into any really political you know, set, set of beliefs, even including libertarianism, even though obviously there's, there's a ton of crossover here. Uh, but I really do appreciate your perspective on things, and uh, I think we need a lot more voices like yourself out there that are challenging you know, not just our, our modern political beliefs, but uh, the way we view history as well. Well, thanks, Mark. That's a high compliment. Appreciate it. Thanks, Thaddeus. We'll be in touch. Okay. Bye-bye. Whew. Well, guys, 
I don't know about you, but I am, I'm just, uh, I'm flabbergasted. I'm floored <laughs> in a good way from my interview with Thaddeus Russell. Now, it's a little different for me because I did this whole interview with Thaddeus in one sitting. You got to listen to it in two parts on last Monday's episode, number 236, and today's episode, number 237. I had a lot of content for you, so I wanted to divvy up a little bit. If you don't like what I did, if you don't like that I split it into two parts, that's okay. I'm just trying it out. First time I've really done this. But if you don't, you can express your dismay, or you can tell me you liked it. You like having this split up into two parts. Either way, you can tell me by joining our private Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. It's completely free to join. We just need to verify that you're a real person and not a Nigerian prince scam artist, because believe it or not, we've gotten a few of those trying to get their way in. But if you look like a normal person, especially if you have some mutual friends in the Liberty world, any way you can make it easier for me to realize that you are someone who should be there, you'll get right in. And you can leave comments for us. You can interact with myself and my other Lions of Liberty cohorts, Brian McWilliams, John Odermatt. The whole gang is in there having fun, and having a good time and talking about the ideas of liberty. That's obviously why I do this, to advance this conversation. And I think we did that in many ways with Thaddeus Russell today. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of you won't necessarily agree with his stance on the non-aggression principle, but even talking to him, I mean, I don't think he's against this concept, but he's trying to point out how it's how it's oversimplified and it doesn't really tell you the context of a situation. Now we have a very complicated history in this country. That's what, what Thaddeus tries to uncover through his work. You know, a lot of the things about history that we don't really know that are not pushed to the forefront or not even mentioned at all in most of our schools and universities. But what libertarianism really needs is, is to try to look at the context. Now, obviously libertarianism is not a thing. It's a bunch of people. I understand this, but a lot of libertarians and myself included, I'm including past versions of myself need to take a look at a lot of these issues in a bigger picture. We can't reflexively always, you know, defend corporations. And when I say me, we, I know it's not necessarily my audience, but there are people out there like this that seem to staunchly defend the free market in every and all areas when the fact is we do not have a free market. You cannot defend the world we live in now with a a wonderful Rothbardian free market where everybody justly acquired their property because that is just not recognizing the world we live in. I'm not saying we need a whole bunch of laws to try to go fix all the the injustices of the past, that's kind of difficult to do. And I'm not saying there's an easy solution there, but we do need to think about things in the larger context, uh, especially when we're talking about property rights. I mean, property rights don't mean jack if the property originally acquired is is not justly acquired. Now, maybe at some point history has gone on so far that it's hard to really discern what's just and what's not. It's a complicated thing. But I think that looking at the nuance of situations is important, and I thought that was a, a really compelling example that, that Thaddeus brought up about a Mexican-American kid working at Walmart, because that's his only option. You know, Does he have to be honest with Walmart? A lot of people might say yes. Thaddeus would say no. Frankly, I'm not sure. I, don't, I think it's a difficult issue. I really do. And I think that's this is the kind of things that we need to be pushing ourselves with. We need to push ourselves to think deeper, to think in a more nuanced way, to think outside the box, because not only is that going to help us parse our ideas out better, it's going to help us communicate with people of all ilks better, of all political ilks, of all political persuasions. That's what I strive to do here at Lions of Liberty. I strive to advance this conversation, not just within the little libertarian niche, but I, I want to try to get us to all be able to communicate these ideas and communicate ideas in general with people of all political beliefs, because that's how we're going to change things, guys. We got to communicate with our fellow man. That's why I picked up this microphone one day. That's why I learned how to do a podcast, because I realized that the key to changing anything that we're upset about is by communicating the ideas effectively to other people, making them palatable, not watering them down, mind you. Not at all. 
We have to have hard principles, steadfast principles. But we have to realize the best ways to apply them and the best ways to communicate them. And I'm not saying I have all the answers, but I do seek them out here. And I'm so thankful for all my fans out there, everybody who has contributed to this program, John Uttermatt, Brian McWilliams, Howie Snowden, uh, Rico, JB Lube, and all the guys that have appeared in our roundtables. I don't know why I'm saying this now as if this is the last episode. It is by, it is by no means the last episode of this program, but it's going to take some time out just to thank everybody who has really got us here. And at the end of the day, nobody has gotten us here more so than the fans of this program, the fans who have been out there subscribing on iTunes, subscribing on Stitcher, subscribing on Google Play, telling your friends and family about this program, saying, hey, you know that crazy liberty stuff I'm talking about? Why don't you give this show a listen? It might, you might find it interesting. You might understand where I'm coming from a little better. So please do share this program. Share it on your social media. You can share it from our main Facebook page, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. You can retweet all our stuff by following us on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. There are really just so many ways you can tell people about this program. Don't forget this coming Friday, guys. John Odermatt is back with another edition of Felony Friday, his weekly look at the broken criminal justice system. Until then, folks, live long and live free.